Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us all here this morning, and thank you for our voices. Thank you for songs that just reflect what is in our hearts to, to worship you. Lord, thank you for your word. Now as we come, would you speak to us? Convict us near where we need conviction. Encourage us where we need encouragement. And draw us closer to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Whether or not you realize it, we all carry around certain levels of shame in our lives. Sometimes it's shame over our own behavior. Like when we sin or do bad things and we seemingly get away with them. Or maybe we have a, a long-standing sinful habit that we are deeply ashamed of. Other times we feel shame because of what other people have done to us. And like when you are caught and punished by someone in authority over you. Maybe you've been mistreated by an employer. And now you feel ashamed to be stuck in a, in a low-rung job or in low pay or even unemployment. Or much worse... We feel the shame when we are hurt or abused by people who we once trusted. Sometimes shame comes because of just something about who we are. Something about our, our nationality, maybe singleness or infertility or mental illness. These things have stigmas sometimes that we feel ashamed over whether or not we should. Ed Welch's definition sums it up. He says, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated and disgraced, and there are witnesses. It's interesting, though, how much of the shame we feel has its roots in injustice. I might not have thought of that before. But our shame has often roots in injustice. When we get away with a sin, for example, we feel that justice hasn't been done to us. Or maybe we were dishonest and unjust with someone else in our lives. When someone else hurts us, we feel they have done an injustice to us. And they have. Maybe you didn't deserve the suffering that they inflicted on you. Or you feel that you've been cheated out of something. Or you were cheated on in a relationship. Maybe you had thought you deserved a certain grade in school. Or you had a, a raise or a promotion you thought you deserved at work that was withheld from you. Kids, maybe you felt that a, a punishment from your parents was unfair. Even the alleged shame of things such as infertility or mental illness seem unjust, don't they? It seems unfair that others have blessings or health that we don't have. Life is unfair. Injustices happen all the time. And it often makes us feel ashamed. But this is not how things should be. This is not how things will always be, praise the Lord. 
Almost all shame can be resolved and actually righted by true and perfect justice. For now, we live in a, a broken world where this happens. But even now, this is not how God intends things, how he wants things to be. How do I know this? Because God's word goes to great lengths in talking about justice. It, it tells us to, to live justly, to do justice, to fight injustice as much as we are able. And one of the best places we see this is in the ancient law that God gave to Israel. Carrying out justice has always been one of the, the key purposes of legal systems everywhere. Even here in Canada, our laws are defined as part of our system of justice. It's part of that. Now, off and on over the, the past number of months, we've been looking at Israel's law code. It's been a few weeks now, but I'm finally taking us back to Deuteronomy. So if you have a Bible or grab one from the chairs in front of you, let's open up to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy 25. Chapters 12 all the way through 26 of Deuteronomy have given us the bulk of the law itself, at least the specific details of the law. And we've seen how basically every law given can be traced back to the Ten Commandments in some way. And this has provided the very loose structure behind the laws given in Deuteronomy. It started out with worship and idolatry, and then it eventually moved on to authorities and bloodshed and sex and so on. The final chapters become much less structured, much less organized. But like the final Ten Commandments, all of these reflect the foundational command of loving our neighbors as ourselves, loving in community. I think today we're going to see all of them, really, they're different aspects of all of them, but we'll see the ninth commandment in particular, to not bear false witness, as justice and honesty tend to go hand in hand. Dishonesty, if you think about often, leads to injustice. So even though we aren't explicitly told here to not lie, that command is in the background. We're going to see more of this later, but that's why I called this sermon Honest Justice. Right? The, the ninth commandment primarily refers to giving testimony in a court of law. And we start out chapter 25 in court. Look at it with me. If there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight." So this is all about a justice system, a judicial system, a legal system, a penal system, all working as it should. The innocent should always be acquitted, and the guilty should always be condemned. Right? My wife and I were watching a movie recently where an innocent man was on death row. But there was no way to prove his innocence, and he ends up actually being executed. And when you, when you see something like this, it, it leaves you grieving evil and longing for justice to be done. 
It's just natural in us. The innocent should go free. The guilty should not. Everyone knows this. And when a condemnation calls for punishment, then punishment should happen. See, here's the point. Honest justice demands proportionate punishment. Honest justice demands proportionate, the right amount of punishment. No less and no more. That's what it says in verse 2. Then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to be beaten in proportion to his offense. In those days, the judges basically acted as judge, jury, and executioner. And so they didn't just have to pass down sentences, they actually had to administer them as well. Now, it's easy to get distracted by the details here and get distracted by the corporal punishment, the beating, and the worry that that's barbaric. But the fact is, physical forms of punishment have always been part of justice systems, all the time. It's not barbaric, it's just natural to have that as part of it. And here, the main point was to restrain the amount of punishment. Right? To, to establish proportionality. To only give what a criminal deserved and no more than that. In other words, the punishment had to fit the crime. Imagine if you were a, a food merchant and you caught a petty thief. You couldn't just have the thief hung for his crime. Right? The, that wouldn't be right. His penalty had to be proportionate. Or imagine if a young punk ended up offending a huge group of people in a town slashing tires, graffitiing walls, whatever young punks did in that day. Cow tipping, maybe. <laughs> be easy for the offended parties to become a mob and then to take out their vengeance, their justice, their anger on him. But mob justice gets out of hand very easily, goes way too far. So this law sets out four requirements for a criminal offense. There had to be a proper trial, proper supervision, a proper proportion of punishment, and a proper limit. It had to end. Sometimes people think that the Old Testament law is way too severe with its punishments. But when you look closely, there are very strict limitations on punishments. And the rights and dignity of criminals were carefully protected. And they weren't, the, Israel just wasn't allowed to dole out excessive or inhumane or even degrading penalties. Did you see that in verse 3? It said, 40 stripes may be given him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. Or humiliated or dehumanized in your sight. So, the whole reason they weren't supposed to punish excessively was to preserve the guilty person's dignity and human rights. Good discipline corrects and shapes. It doesn't crush and shame. 
scholar Daniel Block points out that even the identification of the convicted person as your brother suggests that even though justice was to be administered by objective standards, floggings were never to be carried out heartlessly. After all, even guilty persons are members of the community. Honest justice demands proportionate punishment. This principle also comes out in verse 11 and 12. Skip down there for a minute. This describes a case of fighting dirty. Verse 11. When men fight with one another and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand, your eyes shall have no pity. Everyone with a juvenile sense of humor laughed at that one. <laughs> but sparing you some, some sensitive details, this case does not merely refer to just an immodest groping. Okay? The implication is that the woman injures the man to the point of sterility. And if she takes away the ability for him to father children, what that did would it would threaten the whole the future of a whole family. Hence why the punishment seems fairly severe to us. It's really, in that culture, it's just an eye for an eye in a case where a woman cannot be punished in a literal eye for an eye manner. And in case you still find this too harsh, two other things to consider here. This is the only case in the entire Old Testament law to prescribe a form of mutilation as penalty. Very different than any other ancient law system. Also, this seems like it would be a, a highly specific, unlikely, at least extremely rare scenario. We don't know for sure. We don't have any record of this ever happening, but maybe this law prevented this from ever happening. The underlying point was the same, though. Punish, but punish justly and proportionately. Now, we give thanks to God for our, our country of Canada, like we sang today. But Canada is most definitely not a Christian nation. So our situation is very different than Israel's. As God's people, we are not directly responsible for our society's justice system. Of course, we can hope for and pray for and ask for and advocate for just practices such as these. Fair trials, proper and proportionate penalties for crimes, humane treatment, all good things. Right? But most of us are not in a place where we'll ever be asked to decide a case or to enforce a sentence. Although if you are involved in the legal system or in correctional services or law enforcement, there are certainly principles in this passage that can shape your heart and your work. For the rest of us, perhaps consider how this may play into church discipline, given that our tendency is to dehumanize or even demonize people who disagree with us or who act wrongly. When punishment is deserved, it can be carried out, but never in a degrading way. Parents, the principles here likely play into parental discipline much more often. 
Remember that discipline is meant to correct and train, not to exasperate or crush your kids. So ask yourself, do the punishments you give your children fit their crimes? Or are you excessive? If while disciplining your child, you see them being degraded by it, going too far. Now, with justice demanding proportionate punishment, we're already talking about fairness, right? What's fair, what's not. Fairness is not just a, a secular concept. And it's not just a human instinct. It's actually a biblical value. Fairness is something that God says is a good thing. It's a worthy pursuit. And we're going to see this point come out of some of the other commands regarding justice in Israel here. That honest justice actively pursues fairness. Honest justice actively pursues fairness. First, look with me at verse 4. It says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Now, whether or not you understand that, that is really about fair treatment in pay or payment. Picture the scene with me, okay? A farmer has a whole bunch of grain needing to be threshed. That is to separate the edible kernels of grain from the inedible husks and stalks and chaff, okay? One common way to thresh back in the day was to lay out all the grain on a hard surface, a threshing floor, and to have livestock like oxen stomp and smash out the grain. And that's how they would thresh it. So, this farmer puts his ox to work. It's a big job, hard job. But then he notices the ox is snacking while he works. Well, he doesn't want to lose any of his precious harvest to a hungry ox. So he takes a muzzle, puts it over the ox's mouth to prevent him from eating. Now, is this fair to the ox? No. Right? If you think about it, it's basically animal cruelty. Forcing them to, to work up an appetite while walking over a potential food source, constantly smelling the food, but unable to reap any of the fruit. On one level, this, this verse definitely promotes humane and compassionate treatment of animals. Right? Not humane treatment of criminals, now humane treatment of animals. Proverbs 12.10 says that a righteous man cares for the needs of his animal. It's actually part of righteousness. And we should never exploit any living thing for the sake of greed or profit. But on another level, this law was meant to be a wider principle for how, people, how to treat people as well. For instance, people should have the right to share in the benefits of their labor. And in the, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul applies this verse twice to people being fairly provided for, especially in ministry. 
He says in 1 Corinthians 9, says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And in 1 Timothy 5, he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Chris Wright explains that Paul's argument is that if God requires such fair treatment of a working animal, how much more does he require fair treatment of working human beings, and in particular, those who work for the sake of the gospel or in teaching the church? Now, I want to say, Calvary is doing an excellent job at caring for us leaders. So, be encouraged that our church is healthy in this right now. But I personally know pastors who have been asked to live at unlivable wages. I know people in ministry, missionaries, who are severely undersupported, asked to live even below the poverty line. It's not right. It's not just. And so we must pursue fairness and be on our guard against this potential slide into injustice. Now jump down to verse 13. Verse 13. Another law. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. This has to do with fairness in buying and selling, right? Business dealing. The book of Proverbs tells us that a just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. And that unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Imagine if a, a scale at a grocery store exaggerated the weight of something that you were buying. Okay, whether that's be bananas or zucchini, deli meat ground beef, whatever. The scale says you're buying more than is actually there. So you're charged extra. That wouldn't be fair, right? Of course not. You should get exactly what you pay for. That's fair. Now imagine, even worse, if the store decided to pull out a faulty, faulty scale only for certain people. Now, these are the, the sort of unjust business deals that this law sought to outlaw. I love how Daniel Block applies this to us, though, even in the 21st century. He says, a more relevant issue in the entire book than the call for integrity in all economic transactions can scarcely be imagined. 
Honest and fair calculation of transactions and scrupulous payment of debts should be the hallmark of those who claim to be God's people. At the local checkout counter of the grocery store, where we may be tempted to overlook a miscalculation by the clerk in our favor, and in our offices as we fill out our tax forms, in a society that seems to become more unethical by the day, Christians should stand out for the fidelity and integrity by which they conduct business. If you are in business, or in retail, or in sales, this applies directly into your world. But really, all of us buy or sell things all the time, don't we? So are we doing our, our best to shop ethically, justly, not exploiting the vulnerable? This passage can affect the way that we use Kijiji, Facebook Marketplace, or garage sales, the way we barter or trade. Kids, this can affect the way you trade sports cards or Pokemon cards. This can even affect the way we play board games or card games. <laughs> right? Are we actively pursuing fairness in all of our dealings? Stretches pretty far, eh? Do you notice what is said in verse 16? For all who do such things, such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Notice there how justice and honesty go hand in hand. Dishonest dealings are detestable, it says, an abomination. In other words, insulting to the character of God. If you think that sounds harsh, realize that that unfair business is precisely what led to much of the exploitation and poverty of some of the most vulnerable in society, whom God constantly says he's loving and caring for. In the prophet Amos' book, chapter 8, he shows how dishonest weights can bring social, societal disaster. It's not an exaggeration. This is also where, here in verse 16, where shades of the ninth commandment show up most clearly. We are to be known as honest people in all of our actions and activities. It says all who do such things. That's not exhaustive. Right? That true and honest measures are a fruit of a true and honest life. There are constant challenges today to honesty, to living out really the, the spirit of the law of the ninth commandment. Just think of the online world that we live in, the temptations we face there. We are tempted to create a false facade of a perfect life on social media. We're tempted to pass on unverified or fake news not caring how honest it is. We are tempted to engage in deceitful slander and debates that we get sucked into, calling people names, slandering them. As Carl Truman puts it, the ninth commandment is arguably the greatest moral casualty in the world of Twitter. 
where half-baked slanderous insults can be fired at strangers with no risk of any personal comeback on the tweeter. The Christian world is often embarrassing on this score, betraying both shallowness of thought and also cavalier contempt for the reputations of others. Matt Emerson adds, the ninth commandment implies prohibitions against twisting others' words to make them sound like they mean something they don't. It also implies prohibition against assuming the worst of someone and spreading malicious statements about them before going to them for clarification. This is just one extremely relevant area that we can pursue honesty and fairness in today's world. After all, we should care about other people and their feelings, their reputations, their souls. There's someone on the other side. And remember, these commands can all be traced back to the love for neighbor. We're to love them. And we see yet another example of love lived out back in verse 5 to 10. So look back. We skipped over this section. It says this in verse 5. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that, is, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Now there's a lot of this sounds bizarre to us, right? We'll talk about it. But first let me give you what I believe to be the principle behind this section. Okay, it's simply this. That honest justice carries out love's duties. Honest justice carries out love's duties, the duties demanded by love. While this law sounds strange to us, it accomplished several major important things for them. One, widows who were easily ostracized, cast out of society, were given the continued security of a household. Secondly, it prevented any loss of property or land to outside of a family clan. Third, it kept the dead man's name alive for posterity. Block says that this addressed the worst curse imaginable, to have one's seed cut off and one's name forgotten. And fourth, it preserved the hope of children for the widow as well. Children who could both care for her in her old age, and eventually inherit their late father's land. Note that this was not a forced marriage, but it was yet another way that God was actively looking out for vulnerable people. 
as well as a practical way that the surviving brother could show love to his sister-in-law. Verse 7 describes this as the duty of a husband's brother. Though it was a duty, he could refuse, which would have been tempting for some people. Because if no male heir was there to inherit the man's property, the surviving brother may very well have been in, in line to inherit everything himself. So by fathering a child for this woman, he would be losing any claim on his brother's property. So then the question really became, what do you care about more? A bereaved woman's well-being or your own potential gain? This is why there's a a stigma, a social disgrace attached to the man who refused to do this duty. And verse 7 to 10 describe the public ceremony that would then take place to shame him. The pulling off of sandals and insults laid out there, they're pretty foreign to us. But symbolically, removing a sandal was likely a renunciation of property rights. And then spitting in his face would be an act of public shaming, and the man would get a reputation in the community as a selfish guy who didn't love his family. It's essentially what it's talking about. The ceremony would also free the woman up to remarry anyone else without stigma. The story of Ruth in the Bible is probably the, the clearest example of this law in action. When one man renounced his right to marry Ruth, which meant Boaz then could. Now, I'm quite sure that none of you will be asked or told to marry an in-law. Right? <laughs> Culturally, things are different now. But we can still consider what duties love might demand of us. To love our families, our closest neighbors. To love our families, even our extended families. Caring for aging parents or grandparents could fall under this. Also to care for the bereaved, widows, orphans, economically, sacrificially. Uh, the way these things look will vary from culture to culture. But justice demands that we do the right thing and love those in our circles of influence. Consider how strongly 1 Timothy 5 puts it. In the direct context of caring for widows. It says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, I believe that many of you are, are thriving at carrying out this duty, really this privilege of love, difficult though it may be. But let us all examine our hearts, examine our lives, because justice, God's form of justice, will carry out love. It will. After talking about all these different aspects of honest justice, chapter 25 ends weirdly. Okay? The final three verses, starting verse 17, they seem to come out of nowhere. They seem very random. 
But I think this wasn't random at all, because really, it, it's still all about justice. It's a one-time command Israel was to carry out as a nation once they were settled in Canaan. They were to take care of some unfinished business. Look at it with me. Verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Now that is not just saying to erase the Amalekites from the history books. That's the command for Israel to wipe them off the face of the earth. This was a unique command for them to carry out God's justice on an enemy. You see, honest justice depends on God's justice. It remembers God's justice, it upholds God's justice, and it depends on God's justice. And by this point in Deuteronomy, we have talked at length about holy war. And how what God commanded Israel to do was defensible and justified. I don't have time to go into it today, but if you weren't here before, you got questions about it, I'd be happy to chat, give you resources, whatever you need. But here, it's a very interesting case. Moses reminds the Israelites about what had to be a most unjust and shameful memory. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So the Israelites were weakened, and they just lost this surprise battle in a humiliating way, like a, like a herd of antelope or zebras being chased by a lion. Right? Their, their weakest, slowest, most vulnerable people were being picked off from the rear. Likely including the sick, the wounded, the pregnant, the elderly. Targeting stragglers was a, a cowardly, disgraceful war tactic for Amalek. Which, as it says here, stemmed from their lack of the fear of God. It, it must have seemed, it must have seemed bitterly unjust for them to win and the vulnerable to lose. But Israel's survivors must have felt pretty ashamed by this defeat as well. They had been unable to protect those who most needed protection. They had failed. It says Israel's tail was cut off. A vivid picture of shame. Well, the Amalekites didn't fear God. But they should have. After this cowardly attack, Exodus 17 says that God personally declared war on Amalek. That justice would come for them one day. Notice, for Israel, it was like God was saying, justice is coming. 
and you're actually going to play a part of it. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Like, you shall not forget to make the world forget Amalek. <laughs> now, what do you think? Did Israel obey this command? No, they actually failed for a long time. Joshua, all the judges, didn't succeed at clearing the Amalekites out. King Saul very memorably failed to eliminate their threat. You may know the story. Samuel comes up, what's that bleeding in my ears? As the Amalekites. They were still a violent nuisance to Israel in David's day. Before finally being wiped out about the time of Hezekiah. Centuries later. But notice here in Deuteronomy 25, even if they forgot, God would not forget. And who was it that was giving them the land of Canaan as an inheritance? God was. Who was it that was giving them rest from all their enemies? God. Even in, even in the midst of human failure, God's justice would come about. Israel should have followed orders. It would have saved them so much pain. That they had no reason to fear Amalek and every reason to trust that God would come through for them. They were called to depend on God's justice here. He wanted it to come through them, but instead it would happen in spite of them. And this should remind us to depend on God's justice even now. To entrust ourselves to it. Even when life is unfair and unjust and hard and shameful, God will come through. Chris Wright concludes, In our day of mind-numbing violence, from muggings, rape, and robbery in civilized cities to horrendous war crimes around the world, it is difficult to know how to cope with such reality alongside our faith in the God who cares for the weak and claims to defend the defenseless. We know that the command to exterminate enemies is no longer the way for the disciples of Christ. Yet we affirm the reality of God's sovereign historical justice and the reality of judgment to come on those who persist with no fear of God in trampling on other human beings made in God's image. If the crimes of Amalek were written in a book, as Exodus 17 talks about, then we know that there will come a day when the books will be opened and the judge of all the earth will do right. How can we trust this judge? Well, I trust him because it is my only hope to do so. If we think we're any better at obeying God than the fickle Israelites, we're delusional. I have failed him a thousand times over. I could give you, in a passage like this today, I could give you a long to-do list. 
And it would only increase our shame eventually. Because we'll fail. Really, if God's justice is so certain, this can actually be a scary thing. Right? Because there's a lot that we've gotten away with that we won't get away with forever. It's my only hope to trust him and throw myself on his mercy. But I also trust the judge because of what he's done since these words were written. God said, in essence, you can't bear all your shame, so I'll take it for you. God then sent his own son, Jesus, to take what we deserved. And we, when we deserved to be beaten, worse, killed, we deserved death, Jesus was beaten and killed in our place. He bore the punishment for our sins on the cross, satisfying God's justice. Don't you see? Honest justice demands proportionate punishment. So Jesus died. We've all lived unfairly, dishonestly. We've become abominable in God's sight, but Jesus became an abomination for us so we could receive grace, the undeserved favor of God. On the cross, Jesus also carried out the ultimate duty of love. He wasn't required to, but if he didn't do it, the world wouldn't have been saved. And his love wouldn't stand for that. And so, because of all that, I choose to believe that God will complete his justice one day. I put my trust in the one who promises, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. And so on that day through Jesus, God will eternally acquit the innocent and condemn the guilty. I hope that, that you too would put your trust in him today, staking everything on Jesus, because he's your only hope. One day, believers in Christ will settle in a glorious new promised land. And we will be given in a greater way than the Israelites ever were. We will be given rest from all our enemies. No, we haven't obtained all this yet. We're not already perfect or innocent. But may we press on to make it our own because Christ Jesus has made us his own, forgetting what lies behind, pressing on, straining forward to what lies ahead. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you see our broken world. You see how desperately we need you. Would you come 
quickly, Lord Jesus. Right the wrongs. Bring about justice. And in the meantime, may we reflect your character in seeking to live justly, to love those around us, to show the love that you showed on the cross. God, we don't deserve it, and yet you give it. So we come asking for it now. In Jesus' name, amen.